Well, our theme for the month of January is possibility, the practice of personal unfolding and prophetic vision. I should begin by outlining a little bit about what prophetic vision means in the Unitarian Universalist tradition because it may not be what you think. Prophecy is, about, is not about foretelling a cut in stone and inevitable future. That's someone called a seer. The seer idea comes out of Greek and Roman practice. Seers studied the patterns of birds in flight or the spots on a sacrificed animal's intestines and things like that, and then told what was going to happen. The purpose of seers was merely to warn and the purpose of prophecy was to prepare. In that tradition, there was no way out of the fate that was cast. Take, for instance, the famous case of Oedipus Rex, a story in which the father and king, Laius, is told that he and his wife's bouncing new baby boy will kill his father and marry his mother. Laius, the dad, immediately sets out to avoid that fate, but it happens anyway. That view of prophecy continues into some Christian theologies. You can take, for example, the book of Revelation and the brouhaha that it has caused over the years. The Hebrew prophetic tradition is different. Generally speaking, Hebrew prophets related the words of God, usually with a message of somehow the shape of the Lord thus spake and that kind of thing. But there was a choice involved, and those warned could change their minds and save themselves in that tradition. Now, my favorite is from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, and here's God talking. Quote, I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will never listen." End quote. Now, this prophecy pretty well blows up organized religion, if you stop and think about it. And it turns religious practice into, instead, ethical practice, which is a very humanist way of looking at religious duties. Religious traditions and practice are virtually irrelevant, says Amos. What most matters is the way each of us works to end systemic poverty and oppression. The contrast that the prophet Amos makes is between a prophet and a priest. Prophet good, priest not. The prophet is out in the streets. The priest is back in the building taking care of business. Now, my downtown senior clergy group talks a lot about this distinction. You see all these big buildings around town, and uh, it's a little bit difficult to be a senior minister and get out of those huge buildings because they're always about to fall down, and we have to take care of business. But nobody signs up to be a minister in order to be a priest. We all want to be prophets. 
The social justice angle is generally what's meant by prophecy in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, where we traditionally talk about the priesthood and prophethood of all believers, everybody in the pews. In our tradition, ministers are not even the first among equals, everybody is equal, which is why we UU ministers don't wear funny hats or at least we don't wear funny hats that you're supposed to take seriously. Prophecy then is not about looking into a crystal ball or at tea leaves or at spotted goat guts. It's about assessing a situation and its implications and finding the ethical thing to do. First perhaps, yes, in an ideal form, which is what religious theological thinking does pretty well, idealize, but then considering the real politique, what Otto von Bismarck meant when he said, politics is the art of the possible. What's probable is, unfortunately, almost never ideal. And what's possible, well, depends. The other piece of the monthly theme is the practice of personal unfolding. For me anyway, this involves living life as a sort of improvisational art form. And the first step there is what I call the art of decolonizing the mind. Because seeing clearly is about getting rid of as many preconceptions and misperceptions and assumptions as possible. And a key part of that equation is knowing that none of us can ever achieve that view from nowhere, that completely neutral and objective viewpoint. And we should never pretend to ourselves and others that we can achieve that. None of which is to say we shouldn't try to do that. It remains an open question whether or not kids have to be carefully taught to hate. But it's not debatable that the specificity of our assumptions and desires are manufactured by our society, our culture. And it's a pretty darn sophisticated marketing apparatus all around us. None of us is born loving a particular boxed mac and cheese or a particular triple-decker hamburger with fake smoke flavor. And none of us is born hankering for satin sheets or 400 horsepower automobiles. Fat, salt, sugar, comfort, speed. Yeah, these are things we are born to love, but how we deliver these, th these things to ourselves is cultural. In other words, all of us have minds that have been colonized, colonized by invasive powers from branding to nationalism to religion. Ideally, religions and philosophies aid each of us in developing and maintaining a complex inner life and a set of standards for outward behavior. Part of that complexity is developing the skills to question what at first appear to be unquestionable desires and aversions, both political and cultural. We each have an inner life. The question is how nurturing to ourselves that inner life is and how nurturing to the rest of the planet and our social cooperation. 
For me, that is the practice of personal unfolding that the monthly theme asks us to consider. Now, by the way, those of you with kids in the fifth and sixth grade RE program, they're hearing about the golden rule today, and they're going to be bringing home a golden ruler to remind them. And yes, the golden rule is one of humanity's formulations for connecting the inner life with outer social responsibility. It's not easy decolonizing our thinking, and often it's about resisting the calls. I remember visiting a small chapel in a tiny village in central Mexico. In this remote outpost of empire, the people, the Nahuas, had been forced by their Spanish conquerors to build a Christian chapel, complete with stone carvings of the apostles and the angels. In the carvings, those apostles and angels do not look like the Nahuas, but were featured and dressed like the conquistadores who had forced them to do the carving. The colonizing soldiers and priests had sought to overawe the locals with their grand cosmic religion. What they got instead were images of their oppressive, deluded selves set in stone. Each of us has a colonized mind. Taking a deep look at the colonizers and the colonized is not easy, but it's necessary because resistance is never futile. I was very pleased to find that several hundred feet from that chapel, in a little jumble of cactus, the Nahuas had built a tiny altar to the goddess of corn. And the chapel long ago was shut up and shut down, but people still bring fresh corn to the corn goddess there today. Resistance to the colonizers is always possible. As I said earlier, there are two aspects of a prophecy. One aspect is about idealism, and the other is, is the art of the possible. So the art of the impossible, perhaps, and the art of the possible. Another aspect of that is being informed enough to figure out what's probable in your prophecy, because prophecy is about figuring out what's going to happen and what we can do about it. In politics, religion, and anything else of a social nature, always one question is about going backwards, and another is about going forwards. If we choose the past, well, you know what? It's always an idealized past that we embrace, a usable past that actually probably didn't happen. So I, I want to be brutally prophetic for a little bit, and uh, you decide what you think because we are all prophets and priests uh, for, in our own right and in our own mind. I think from a prophetic viewpoint and taking a hard look at what's probable, it's plain to see what I consider to be an irreversible collapse of American power in the world. The really dumb, naive nationalism that Trump has has merely accelerated something that started a long time ago. The probability, I think, is that the US and the UK and EU and NATO all have seen better days. Why? Because the old European-style colonialism has played itself out. The rest of the world is not longing for white Christian power any more than those Nahuas Indians did back in the 1540s. 
That's the probable. Europeans and Europeanized Americans believed that we were succeeding in the world because of the power of our ideas. But actually, it was the power of our applied science that was doing the trick. And the rest of the world has now caught up. That has implications for the future, I prophesy. If your armies aren't out in the world stealing stuff for you, your uh, cost of living goes up and your quality of living goes down. And I believe that's the future I can prophesy. The fact is, when the economic system becomes global, so do wages, and so does the standard of living. And the rich nations such as us, we're gonna notice a little bit of a decline. It's gonna hurt in the rich nations. The probability is that we're not gonna make America great again, or Europe great again, or European Christianity great again, or white Euro-American power great again. Time is an arrow, it goes only one way, and there's never, ever, and again. Yes, the past can tell us valuable things about planning for the future. Our human history is a great, great sort of inheritance to have. We're very lucky. We're lucky to know how the ancients dealt with the challenges that they faced. Uh, that ability to pass on information from generation to generation is what has enabled human beings to survive and thrive on the planet. But the past is past. It already happened. And what we have done is not working anymore. It's not working the way we consume fossil fuel. It's not working how we use up natural resources. It's not working how we consume our food. It's not working in terms of our religions or our politics, which still today all over the world remain local and provincial in the very worst sense of those terms. There are all kinds of reasons we can't build a wall. Some reasons are logistical. If you haven't been to the Texas border, I've, I have jumped over the Rio Grande people. <laughs> you can't build a wall. It's not possible. Some are moral, and some reasons not to build a wall is that it's pointless. The world simply doesn't work that way anymore. But yes, there is hope. There is possibility because, you know what? Those challenges are how we developed our brains in the first place. As human beings came down from the trees on the savanna of Africa, we developed mental mapping and complex language and ways to exist in cultures that grow bigger and bigger and bigger. That's pretty amazing when you stop to think about it. I, for one, don't want to return to the days of my youth when so many Americans thought it was the white man's burden to force democracy, capitalism, and Christianity on the rest of the planet and enforce white supremacy and patriarchy here in our homes. The death of those things, I think, makes the world and all of us better. The reading this morning is from the author Ed Simon, that book, America and Other Fictions on Radical Faith and Post-Religion. The argument in his book is very straightforward. It's time that liberals, both politically liberal and religiously liberal, reclaim and live into the mythology of America as a liberator of humanity. 
Not in the sense that the idea came to mean in our past with disastrous invasions and botched attempts at nation building, but a liberator through the idea of a free human being in America, a place where no human being is ever treated as a means rather than an end in and of themselves. Ed Simon's field of study is 17th century British history, where and when was born the idea of a land free of constraints in terms of state religion, state-imposed hierarchies, and social and economic differences. Those were radical ideas that in practice never gelled in the British Empire and never gelled here in North America. They are ideals, but they're good ideals. I've said many times that as I see it, the central ethical core of humanism is that no person ever be treated as a cog in a machine or a means to an end. Nobody should ever be an illegal or a deviant or any other label that we use to make someone other. Yes, treating every human being as a free and individual part of the social whole is an ideal. It's a dream, but at least it is a worthy dream. It's not probable, maybe it's not even possible, but it is a good goal to pursue. Those of you who know Hamilton and American Musical remember that George Washington character says to Alexander Hamilton at one point after the war, winning was easy, young man, governing is harder. And then King, uh, yeah, he does. And King George sings, it was much harder when it's much harder when it's all your call. Yeah, it is. Ed Simon, who is an atheist, is calling for a liberalism that recognizes and calls out delusion and is willing and able to call things by those old European names like sin. He's calling for a liberalism that recognizes that American evil is the result of way more than failing to listen to the right NPR broadcast. In his view, Trump is the product of liberalism, not conservatism, a liberalism that believes falsely and naively that everyone is trying to do the right thing, they just don't understand how. He uses the old myth of original sin, saying that describes a human propensity that we need to recognize in ourselves and in our government. Sometimes we need to call things just plain evil. In your order of service this morning is a little quote from Oscar Wilde from 1891 and its essay called The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Wilde late in his life became an anarcho-socialist. He did not believe in hierarchy, but he thought the only way to develop a, a true human being was to allow everyone to be an artist and give everyone the ability to do that. Yeah, that's kind of ideal, but not a bad idea. Quote, he says, a map of the world that does not include utopia is not worth even glancing at, for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing. He continues, and when humanity lands there, it looks out and seeing a better country sets sail. Progress is the realization of utopias, end quote. Our ability to imagine things which are not now the case is one of our greatest human gifts.
That ability allows for prophecy and dreaming and social change, real social change. The other function of that utopia on the map, of course, is hope. Can you or I ever decolonize our minds? No. We can't do that any more than we can achieve a completely carbon neutral existence or a prejudice free mind. We're not saints, but you know what? The saints weren't saints either. They were human. What we can do is embrace an ideal and a meaning and a purpose and a dedication to improving ourselves and our planet right here in our very real world.